This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Fable We're sitting down to write and record this particular episode of the Word of the Week a little late. That's partly due to a heavy workload and a number of sudden emergencies that have limited our time this week. But it's also partly due to the fact that we, if we had to put a fine point on it, we are procrastinators. And whenever we admit that we are procrastinators, we always think of our grandmother. But before we explain why, we need to address the myth of procrastination, which is not the myth of Procrustus. Who was Procrustus? Well, Procrustus, who was also sometimes called Polypemon, Damastes, or Procaptus. Procrustus was a mythological Greek crazy person, sort of the equivalent of Jigsaw from the Saw franchise. But he only had one game, and so the sequels were even more repetitive. Procrustus lived in Attica, or Eleusis, it's not entirely clear, and he was supposedly the child of Poseidon. And Procrustus had this uncomfortable bed made of iron. What he'd do was kidnap a traveler and force them to lie on the bed. And if they didn't fit on the bed, he'd fix the problem. If they were too big for the bed, he'd chop off the excess length of leg until they did fit. And if they were too small for the bed, he'd take a big old hammer and hammer them out thin and flat until they were long enough to fill the bed. And as you might expect, his victims invariably died. Except for one time. That one time was when he made the mistake of kidnapping Theseus. Theseus, the Attican hero, son of Aegeus, the king of Athens, who basically wandered Greece killing monsters and villains and serial killers. Seriously, that was his thing. Like when he killed the guy who murdered people by tying them between two tied-down pine trees and then releasing the pine trees, which would then whip up in the air and rip the person apart. He was called the Pine Bender. Theseus was basically Batman, and Greek mythology had a lot more insane-themed killers than you might expect. Like this bed guy. So Procrustus had the bad fortune to kidnap Theseus, the guy whose self-proclaimed job description was to kill ancient Greek serial killers. It was the equivalent of some new Gotham villain attempting to kidnap and kill Bruce Wayne in an elaborate death trap. What we're saying is... Procrustus picked the wrongest guy he could have picked to say, do you want to play a game? Long story short, Theseus made Procrustus fit on his own bed via Procrustus's own method. Oh, and some myths say Theseus was actually the son of Poseidon, so they were also half-brothers. What does that have to do with procrastination? Well, the thing is, Procrustus had several names, as we mentioned. But Procrustus was just his villain name, because it was a Greek word for a smith who stretched metal out by beating it flat with a hammer. It means the stretcher with a hammer. Which, by our calculations, makes his Batman villain name something like Dr. Stretchenhammer. 
Anyway, the myth of Procrustes has given us the idiom of the Procrustean bed, which refers to arbitrarily and cruelly forcing someone to conform to some rigid structure. For example, Edgar Allan Poe's Detective Dupin describes the Parisian police's investigation policies as a Procrustean bed in the purloined letter. And there is also the claim that procrastination, the word, comes from the name of Procrustes because of the stretching out thing. Except that it's not true. The truth is that the word procrastination comes from the Latin. It comes from the phrase procrastinere, which means to hold on to something for tomorrow, which is precisely what procrastination means. What does this have to do with our grandmother? Well, don't worry. Our grandmother was not an ancient Greek serial killer. She was very kind, but she was one of those women who had an aphorism for everything. Such as, don't put off until tomorrow what you can do today. And she repeated them so many times that every time we do literally anything, our head is filled with a litany of pithy phrases and moral lessons that just make us feel bad about ourselves. Now, last week we talked about stories and about how stories are used to pass down information from one generation to another in a way that sticks in the human brain. And when it comes to passing down pithy phrases and moral lessons from one generation to the next, there is no more proven form of verse than the fable. We know you've heard a few of these in your life. A fable is a short story that illustrates a moral lesson and then ends with a nice, pithy, easily quotable summary of the moral lesson. And like the myth of Procrustus, which is not a fable, they also tend to spawn a bunch of idioms. Take, for example, the boy who cried wolf. Don't stop us if you've heard this one, because you probably have, everyone has, but we'll make it quick. Once upon a time, a shepherd boy got bored of sitting on a hill watching sheep chew grass day in and day out. He decided he needed some excitement in his life, so he started screaming his stupid head off that there was a wolf attacking the sheep, and everyone in town came running with axes and pitchforks, and we don't know, those comical-looking old scatterguns with the trumpet ends? Whatever. And they all started running around looking for the wolf, and the kid laughed his head off. He thought it was so funny the way everyone freaked out that he did it again the next day and then the next day. But the townsfolk didn't think it was very funny, so after a few days it got old, and they realized the kid was just screwing with them naturally immediately after they resolved to not come running again. We jump cut to an actual wolf creeping out of the bushes and sneaking up on the child. The child starts screaming, everyone ignores him, the child is eaten, so are the sheep, and all the people in the village die because they have no wolf or winter clothes or sheep meat eat for mutton the end. And the moral of the story is, if you lie all the time, no one will believe you when you're telling the truth. Or alternatively, don't make your parents look stupid or they will let a wolf eat you. And the idiom that comes from that is crying wolf, which means to knowingly raise a false alarm and thereby reduce the effectiveness of actual alarms. And that's a fable, a pretty famous fable. And more importantly, that fable is part of one of the most famous collections of fables in the Western world, written by one of the most famous fable writers of the Western world. Sort of. And when we say sort of, we say it was sort of part of the collection. And also that the collection was sort of written by one of the most famous fable writers in the Western world. 
So let's talk about Aesop's Fables. Aesop's Fables is a collection of originally about 700 of those sort of fables. Allegorical myths, really. A story that illustrates a moral lesson. The original collection includes a lot of stories that are still part of the lexicon of children's stories today, like The Boy Who Cried Wolf, or The Ant and the Grasshopper. That's the one where an ant works hard gathering food in summer for the coming winter while a grasshopper just plays his fiddle, and then winter comes, and the ant has plenty of food, and the grasshopper ends up starving and only survives because the ant isn't a jerk. Then there's the boring one where the fox gets mad because he can't eat some grapes and says the grapes are probably rotten anyway. Or the messed up one where the scorpion stabs a frog in the back and they both drown because the scorpion can't stop being a killer long enough to let a frog help him across the river. Or the one where a bunch of frogs ask the gods to crush them under the heels of a tyrant for no reason and the gods do so? Oh, you don't know that one. Well... Basically, it goes that there is this group of frogs happily living a carefree life in a pond. One day, though, some of the frogs get it in their head that they need a leader, someone to take control and lead them into, well, we're not sure into exactly what. A glorious new age of frogdom, the land of flies and more flies. So the frogs pray to their god. And the god sends them a log and says, Okay, this log is your leader. The god was making a point about how the frogs had it just fine and didn't need a leader. But frogs are kind of dense and the message didn't come across very clear. So the frogs started making fun of the log. It was a terrible leader, they complained. It didn't say or do anything. And as they abused the log, it didn't even fight back. What good was a leader who didn't fight back? Now, clearly, the frogs had some odd ideas about what a leader should do. But the frogs appealed to their god and said they needed a strong leader, a powerful leader, not a wishy-washy log. So the god, having decided he didn't like being the god of frogs anyway, sent them a great big stork, and it ate all the frogs. The end. Yeah, I was in there. Anyway. The thing with Aesop's fables is that Aesop himself might have been the biggest myth of all, because there's no proof the guy actually existed. And if he did exist, there's a lot of argument about who he was. The popular story runs that Aesop was a slave who lived sometime around 600 BCE. He was a rare, literate slave, and he had a gift for storytelling. He was also said to have some physical deformities and a speech impediment. According to some versions of the story, a deity healed some of his afflictions. Aesop's gift, so it goes, was the gift of, as the kids say, really sick burns. He had this habit of standing up to his taskmasters, and when they were about to punish him, he'd spin a story that somehow showed some sort of irony or funny characteristic of the situation that made the taskmaster realize they were being stupid, and then they'd laugh about it and Aesop would go unpunished. Try that the next time your boss is mad at you, and let us know how it works out for you. For Aesop, everything was just fine, right up to the one time when he was thrown off a cliff and killed for stealing a silver cup. There's probably a moral to the end of that story, but Aesop didn't survive to tell it. The whole story, though, is kind of dubious, and there's no evidence that Aesop really even existed. He might have been a pen name for another author, or several other authors. 
The only proofs we have that Aesop existed is that his name is in the title of the collection, Aesop's Fables, and that other Greek writers like Herodotus and Aristotle wrote about him. And that's pretty dubious, too. After all, Greek writers wrote about lots of imaginary things as if they were real, like Atlantis and the Chimera. And some Greek writers also may not have existed despite having written famous works, like Homer. And some of the people who wrote about Aesop only wrote about him to criticize how politicians were using fables in their speeches to sway their constituents toward specific ideas without having to make good arguments. Aristotle, for example, basically claimed that he could write a fable that could prove just about any point he wanted, and that fables didn't make rational arguments. Which is kind of obvious when you think about it. Fables basically taught simple moral lessons to kids, and Greek politicians did have a tendency to use those fables in their speeches to get people to agree to some pretty complex policies. But we digress. The point is, we can't be sure who Aesop was or if he existed, but it doesn't matter, because we also know he didn't write his fables. Well, he did write down his fables, if he existed, but he didn't create the things, he just compiled them and made them popular. What happened was that the Romans discovered a copy of Aesop's fables, specifically a Roman translator and author named Phaedrus, and he translated a bunch of them into Latin and they gained a lot of popularity and sold pretty well. There were copies all over Rome. And then Rome collapsed. But then along came the Romance era in the 11th and 12th century when certain parts of Middle Ages Europe went gaga for anything Roman. Well, the first time a Romance era hit anyway. And the fables were rediscovered. And then they took off because of another story form that had gained in popularity at the time, the Beast Epic. You know how popular Disney and Warner Brothers cartoons are always about intelligent talking animals having over-the-top adventures in exaggerated human-like situations? You know, like Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Mickey Mouse, and every Disney afternoon cartoon ever. Or that Robin Hood movie. Those are beast epics. And they have been a thing for a long time. In fact, they were big in ancient Rome, too. But in the 12th century, in France, animal stories were really in and they mainly took the form of long stories about talking animals having adventures that poked satirical fun at various aspects of human society and or taught some kind of moral lesson. Well, we don't know if you noticed, but a lot of Aesop's fables also star a bunch of talking animals teaching moral lessons. So you had authors like Marie de France who compiled collections of Aesop's fables and then started adding her own fables called Aesopettes. And you had the collected stories known as Roman de Renard, the romance of Reynard. Reynard the fox was a hero of various animal tales, but we say hero loosely. He was a coward, immoral and self-serving, but he was also cunning and sly, and he would always manage to triumph over stronger, more powerful characters. Characters like the wolf. And because the antagonists were always shown as being even more greedy, self-serving and cruel, Reynard the fox was sympathetic by comparison. Just a fox trying to get by with his wits. An amoral, screwball-type character who was in no way like certain carrot-chomping bunnies in modern cartoons. So Aesop's fables enjoyed a resurgence. 
They appealed to the cultural zeitgeist in 12th century France and other places in Europe, who were all about good animal stories and anything Roman. And then the Baroque period hit. Rome was out, moralizing was out, animal stories were out, and Aesop was out. But then the Enlightenment hit. Philosophy and morality were hot topics, and every philosopher was looking for a good allegory to illustrate their points or explain things to the masses, and suddenly, fables were back in. And guess whose name was still associated with inventing the Western fable? And of course, in the modern age, cartoon animals are all over public television teaching children about the virtues of sharing, and cleaning up, and not driving their parents crazy by screaming about wolves. So that's why we think all fables are Aesop's fables. But as we said, Aesop didn't write the fables. He just compiled them. They'd been around a long time, floating sort of aimlessly around Greece. And there's evidence that at least some of the stories came from Sumeria due to the similarity of their short, moralizing animal stories, which is actually a surprisingly popular genre across the world. For example, while we Westerners were learning not to decry something we can't have as sour grapes, and that slow and steady wins the race, especially if your opponent is a narcoleptic and a moron. Across the centuries, in Southeast Asia, people were learning their moral lessons from the Hindu equivalent of a fable inception, the Pankatantra. The original Pankatantra, whose name means five verses, has been lost to the mists of time. It was a Sanskrit word, written sometime between 100 and 500 CE. In India, the text has been reconstructed, recompiled, edited, annotated, and reissued numerous times throughout the last two millennia, with the most famous being a 1031 CE translation by Durgashima Kannada and a 1924 reconstruction of the original Sanskrit by Franklin Edgerton. And it gained fame in Europe and the West after being translated in Persian by a physician named Burzo in the 6th century, and then translated into Arabic by Ibn al-Makafa, around 750 CE. And it was that version that got translated into Greek, Latin, Hebrew, and then various European languages. In fact, because of all this translation effort, it is the most frequently translated piece of literature ever to come out of India, and today, there's over 200 versions of the text in 50 languages. So, though it may not be as common a household name as Aesop's Fables outside of India, it was still amazingly influential and spread far and wide. And it is also known to have influenced some of the same stories and authors we mentioned above as following Aesop's format. Both Chaucer and Shakespeare are known to have taken ideas and stories from it. In Europe, by the way, it is known as the Fables of Bidpai. So what is the Pankatatra? Well, it's what's called a nitty. That's basically a book meant to teach leaders how to lead. It's kind of like being a ruler for dummies. But what it really is, is a collection of fables, or rather, fables within fables. And the lessons it contains are good for everyone, not just rulers. The book is divided into five parts, and each part presents a single overarching narrative. That narrative contains numerous instances of characters telling other stories to each other. And that's where the fables come in. And the reason we call it the inception of fable collections is because many of those fables contain other characters sharing other fables. And many of the fables involved anthropomorphized animal characters. 
The first book, for example, tells the story of a disgraced unemployed royal minister who happens to be a jackal named Damanaka. He used to work for the king of the lions. He and his buddy Karataka are bitter over the whole unemployment thing. So they conspire to ruin the king's alliances and relationships to leave him disgraced, alone, and unsupported. The two share stories about the various ways in which friendships, partnerships, and alliances have been ruined before by various creatures. And each story actually shares an important lesson about how to maintain strong relationships and friendships. Now, we'd love to tell you more about these fables. See, we've always meant to read the fables a bit by ourselves after we read some excerpts as part of a college class on Hinduism and Indian history we took years ago. The problem is, well, we never got around to reading the book. We just kept putting it off. We really should have listened to Grandma and Aesop. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. Thank you.